Welcome to Salon Evocations, a podcast about taking the study of all things literary out of the institutional space of the classroom and into the world. I'm your host, Sophia Basaldo-Asan of The Metropolitanist, and I'm here with my co-host, collaborator, and co-conspirator, Kim Coates of Evocations Review. And this is our New York episode. Today we're talking all things New York City. Hey, Kim. Hi, Sophia. So this is our New York episode, and it's somewhat ironic because this is the first time I am not located in New York. Um, We are recording remotely now since we're recording in quarantine days of the coronavirus, and I am located in Massachusetts, and um, Sophia is actually still in New York, so maybe it's just ironic for me, but regardless, we are here to talk about New York City and writing And uh, before we dive in, we wanted to just sort of cover our own experiences with New York City and writing. Yeah, definitely. So New York is um, the publishing center of the world and has been since the early 19th century. So or well, actually, I think like the mid 19th century. Um, And I think that that to me anyway, has kind of colored my experience doing my Ph.D. in the New York area or New York State. just because, you know, there are many places you can do a PhD or a master's degree across the United States that don't have this literary culture. But since we're studying literature, it's really adds something to be at the center of publishing, at the center of kind of the literary world at its mo- in in the United States and its most kind of dense form because a lot of authors live here as yeah. well. Um, but I wanted to start with a question for Kim. What is your background with New York City? When did you move and what brought you here? Well, I moved to New York City in 2015. So my fifth year living in the city and I came here for graduate school to start my PhD. And, um, the school where Sophia and I did our PhD, Stony Brook University is actually located on Long Island two hours outside of New York City. But after my first year in the PhD program, I decided to move into Brooklyn. Um, I guess I was sort of just craving a little bit of culture and being around um, some more dynamism, I guess. So I moved into Bed-Stuy and that was in 2015. And I lived there for about two years. Um, And then I actually moved to Park Slope also in Brooklyn. And now I live in Dumbo, also in Brooklyn. So I have been in Brooklyn the whole time I've been in New York City. And that's really like my most comfortable zone um, within the city. Obviously, there's other boroughs, there's Manhattan, um, Staten Island, Queens, but Brooklyn is the one I know the best just because I've lived there. And in terms of like, literary culture in New York or Brooklyn and how I have interrelated with it over the years. I think like with most things, New York, it's an overwhelming scene in the beginning and it has a bit of a steep learning curve um, just to get your bearings about yourself. But one thing I really love about New York City and Brooklyn is the bookstore culture and the literary culture in general. Um, This can be seen like from the most basic things like reading on the subway um, and reading in bars to more like established things. Like there are wonderful bookstores throughout the city. Some of my favorite are um, Greenlight Books, which is in Brooklyn and Powerhouse Books is also a small chain in Brooklyn. And then I have to mention The Strand, which is this big store in um, sort of like the West Village area of Manhattan. or I guess it's kind of near Union Square. People are probably going to dispute where that is located because I probably didn't say where, exactly where it was right. Anyway. NYU. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, the literary culture in New York, but like I was saying, I think it's something that just permeates really like every aspect of society down to really mundane things. Like I always get a kick out of seeing people read paperbacks on the subway that just never seems to go away and um 
I already mentioned this, but I also always get a kick out of seeing people reading paperbacks at bars or like having, you know, that like proverbial hipster who has the paperback in their back pocket. Like that actually happens a lot in Brooklyn. So these are small things, but I think that sort of paints the picture of the cityscape. Like this is a city where reading a book is very normal and even encouraged. And for me as a writer and a reader, that has always made it a very welcome space to be, to exist within and to know that it's totally normal and acceptable to go to a coffee shop or um, whatever and just open a book or notebook like that culture is alive and well. And um, so, yeah, that that's something that I really love about the city and the literary culture. And I guess, Sophia, I would ask you the same question. What is your background with New York? What brought you to New York? How long have you been living here? And kind of what is your, like, experience with the literary scene in New York City? Yeah. Um, so I had actually never been to New York City until I got into the PhD program at Stony Brook, which was the first time I think I even considered moving here. Um, so that was like, I think that's a little bit unique. A lot of people actually visit the city and you probably did growing up in Massachusetts come here long before you uh, did your PhD, but I, I had did. never been. Yeah, I never wanted yeah. to move there full time. I never wanted to move to New York. It was very overwhelming to me. So I never thought that it would be anywhere I lived full time. But but yeah, I had been there once or twice. <laughs> yeah, when I I think when I came up to um, New York to go apartment hunting, actually, back in 2013, I um I wasn't really sure if I should be looking for an apartment in the city or if I should be looking for one on Long Island. I ultimately ended up looking for and finding one on Long Island. And then I had like an extra day. So I was like, okay, well, I really want to like laze around in the hotel room, but I'll probably regret it if I don't like go see what New York City is. And that day was so overwhelming. I like didn't go back to New York City for probably <laughs> six months. I was like, I don't like this place. It's hard. It's hard to come in, I think, by train because you arrive at Penn Station. It's really overwhelming. If you come in on a weekday like I did, then you find yourself in this kind of like Matrix-esque sea of suits just kind of being dragged along in the current of workers mm -hmm. rushing to get to wherever they're going. And at a certain point, you just don't know how to get out of that like stream of humanity. And I was just like, I hate it here. Most New Yorkers wouldn't go to Midtown unless they're forced to. And so I think, you know, to have that be your introduction to the city is really challenging. So yeah. like I said, I moved to New York State in 2013. So I've been in the state for seven years. Um, I do kind of see Long Island as a part of the city, I think, because I, first of all, it's a part of the greater metropolitan area. It's the suburbs of the city, but also, you know, some iconic works of literature have taken place out there, like The Great Gatsby um, or Long Island will come up in Edith Wharton's novels as well when they're traveling to kind of like their country houses. So I always think of that as like my initial introduction was kind of in this like countryscape. Um, even though it's pretty heavily suburban now. Um, back then, I lived in Rocky Point, which is quite far east. Uh, and it would take me, I think, like 35 minutes to get out to Stony Brook, which is already um, almost at the end of the Port Jeff line <laughs> coming out on the Long Island Railroad. So really far out um, east and I think north. So that was where I spent my first two years. And then in 2015, when I was done with my coursework and moving on to my comprehensive exam year, I found a studio in Woodside, Queens and moved to the city. And that was a great experience. Woodside and Queens in general is one of the most or actually I think the most diverse area in the United States, the most international yeah, and cool. possibly in the world, which is pretty crazy. So I was, you know, like at the epicenter of kind of a certain type of cosmopolitanism, very mm -hmm. much working class immigrant cosmopolitanism, but it was like, so not this like uh, kind of glamorous cosmopolis Don DeLillo cosmopolitanism, um, but it was a great place. I ate a lot of really amazing food in that time and um, yeah, just really enjoyed that neighborhood. And then I got married two years later, so I moved to the Upper West Side, which is a very different culture in its own right. So my husband works at um, Columbia University as a clinical professor and researcher, and Columbia is located on the UWS, which makes it 
a very like academic neighborhood. Um, so on the one hand, there is this like strong literary culture, but I think it's always framed more through the academic culture than it is through kind of like the publishing and writing culture, even though Penguin Books is just a few blocks actually um, away from the Upper West Side, just kind of at the top of Midtown. So, um, yeah, there's one of the things that I love about being up in this area is that strong sense of like intellectual identity. I think Upper West Siders in opposition to say like the Upper East Side were the readers of the uptown oh, area making some big claims over there <laughs> just kidding <laughs> i think i think they would agree they're the shoppers for the readers we don't have any like no fifth avenue stores over here and um, what are we over in brooklyn oh you guys are definitely the writers <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> you're like the literary production branch i mean i think a lot of writers do live out in brooklyn like michael shabon is the one that comes to mind for me but i think yeah, I think West. that's pretty accurate, actually. Yeah, and because it's a for it's more affordable, I think. So writers are you always find more writers where it's more affordable. Yeah. Um, and then Although I think Brooklyn has become quite unaffordable, but yeah, I still yeah, that's true. I still think there's a lot of writers and now it's like, just successful creators. writers. Yeah, <laughs> famous writers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, so that's and I think like another sort of element of the sort of literary culture of the Upper West Side is actually there are a lot of sort of like older retired men who set up like tables on the sidewalks um, with used books on them. Mm, and yeah. you can shop at those tables if you go walking around. Um, I think I've only done that kind of walking around on the weekends. So I don't know if they're there on the weekdays, but. Yeah, I think that to me, that's kind of, that's the Upper West Side kind of literary scene is you have those. We also have some, um, some of the older, I think, used bookstores that are still holding out up here. Um, but unfortunately, actually, the large book culture that's uh, like really close to Columbia is, I think it was closing. It might have been bought out, but no, I think it's close. I think it was just completely shuttering so that used bookstore is gone and then there's another used bookstore up in the 80s on broadway that um was threatening to close about a year ago and i don't know they said they had about one more year in them to keep running it so we'll see yeah i guess i have a question for you which is just what is your i mean talking about bookstores potentially closing what is your favorite just personal preference what's your favorite bookstore in the city Ooh, that's a good question. I think McNally Jackson is my favorite bookstore to go to for like new books. And then I don't even know the name of it, but that used bookstore up on Broadway is my favorite for um for used books. It's like up on 80, probably like 87th or so, somewhere between 87th and 88th, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. So I really like it there. It's I'll maybe I'll like pop a picture of that up actually whenever this episode debuts because I have a picture of myself in that store and it's just a like it's so tiny it's like the size of a closet but it's just completely packed with books yeah and, that's, um, that's awesome um we have yeah, to get the name of that store yeah I'll have to look <laughs> it up I don't know I don't know if it really like has a name to be honest I feel like it just is the used bookstore and either you walk by and walk into it or not you know yeah I, I think, think my favorite uh, is probably green light books in um Fort green I like that bookstore in Brooklyn um but as we're both chatting about like there's clearly a lot of bookstores and book culture just sort of around there's tons of creative people in New York City that's sort of a you know, we all know that that's kind of a not needed disclaimer for anyone out there. And I think that results in a lot of this culture just permeating. One thing I would like to add, just based on the personal experience of um, this topic, something that Sophia mentioned earlier about, like how the top five publishing houses are all located in New York City really adds to that literary world and paradigm of the city in the professional sense as well so I don't want to paint however I don't want to like paint the picture that it's a utopia or anything I think that 
one of the sort of off-putting elements of the city is that there's so much competition. I mean, there are almost 9 million people living in the city, and many of them are creatives trying to get a foot in the door of a publishing industry or a bookstore or what have you. And as lovely and wonderful as it is, and I love this element, this like literary element of the city, I have also experienced that competition as really difficult for a creative person. I mean, there's so many also like just not even talking about literature. There's so many art schools and art programs. And then, of course, like all of these artists are turned out into this city, which is also the center of capitalism and commerce. And it's difficult. It, it creates a sort of difficult dichotomy. I have always felt between the creative energy and that competition of trying to get a foothold within an industry to be able to make some kind of life for yourself or livelihood. Yeah, I would agree. I think that there are like certain things about New York that are really great for um, quality of life, like just the infrastructure, not having to own a car, not having to worry about that expense, being able to move around the city with relative ease and find, you know, everything you need kind of repeated within every five blocks, like being able to find grocery stores and not having to drive to them, that kind of thing that makes living in New York, I think, a great place to be trying to create things because in some ways you don't have to think too hard about the necessities of life. But at the same time, it's so expensive. And I think that burden of expense really weighs on everyone except the oligarchs who seem to be buying up these like overbuilt luxury buildings. Um, but New York... I think is experiencing this kind of a lot of people actually are moving out of the city. Like the population has been going down because it's just too expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think if I could pick one word to explain New York, it would be dynamic. It's just, there's so much going on. So many moving parts all the time. And on the positive note to end this segment on the positive it is a very, very cool place to live if you're a writer or a creative person. There is so much fodder there for experience and every emotion and every element that your creative soul could ever want. Like, it's there. And even with the challenging elements, the fact that there is so much there for the writers and the creative people in society, I think makes it a really wonderful and endearing city to live in. Yeah, well, and it's a good place to do that uh, writing exercise that you were talking about the last episode where you like go sit in a train station or um, in some kind of a public space and write down like 12 facts that you notice around yourself. I think, you know, especially if you're planning on leaving the city, but you want to create a kind of repository of what mm -hmm. is New York City, it's a good place to go, sit, write down those facts and then take them away for whatever a character is traveling to the city yes. because it is the epicenter of so many things besides illness. <laughs> yes, true. Yes, thank you for saying that. Um, it's true. And like, I think for myself being away from, from New York for two weeks now, I'm actually finding myself miss it a lot more than I anticipated. So um, yeah, there's a lot of things to to love about the city. And I, think, I miss it too, and I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people who are there are just inside their apartments right now. So <laughs> I guess we all miss those elements, but I guess like just our own experience of the place, if I could just give one final word of advice to anybody who's thinking of moving to the city or anything along those lines is just like, give it time because it, I know you hear that all the time, but truly I've been in New York for five years and it's just starting to feel like I understand the city and I understand how to sort of like live there. And I know that sounds like such an insane amount of time, but don't feel discouraged if it's really hard the first few months or even the first couple of years to find your bearings. I think the longer you live in New York, the better it gets. Yeah, definitely. You build that sense of community, which is true of anywhere. I mean, I've moved so many times and I know you have as well. Um, I was moving, I think, every two years starting in undergrad. So, And the thing that I've discovered is that first year is always the worst. Um, you don't know anyone. You feel really lonely everywhere you go. And then as you start to build a sense of community, who your friends are, 
where you're going to go, um, how you fill your hours in meaningful ways, that's when a place really becomes, I think you gain ownership of it. And New York is maybe has a little bit of a steeper learning curve because it's so complex. It's so large and there are so many options, but once you establish it, it, you feel like a New Yorker, it feels good. Too many an iconic work of literature has been written in and about New York City to cover during this brief podcast, so we decided to focus on female authorship in the 20th century. New York is often referred to as the capital of the 20th century, and that transformation gets off the ground in the 1840s, with the 1830s representing the last decade of the New York constructed by colonialists. As one of our novels, Edith Wharton C.H. Vinicent's originally titled Old New York, hints at in this passage about architecture. A visit to Mrs. Manson Mingott was always an amusing episode to the young man. The house in itself was already a historic document, though not, of course, as certain other old family houses in University Place and Lower Fifth Avenue. Those were of the purest 1830, with a grim harmony of cabbage rose garlanded carpets, rosewood consoles, round immense glazed bookcases of mahogany, whereas old Mrs. Manson Mingott, who had built her house later, had bodily cast out the massive furniture of her prime and mingled with the Mingott heirlooms, the frivolous upholstery of the Second Empire. And the key kind of phrase there is, those were of the purest 1830, with a grim harmony of cabbage, rose garlanded carpets, carpets, rosewood consoles, round immense glazed bookcases and mahogany so I guess like on some level it's also about interior design but this idea that we already kind of start to get in um, Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence of that the 1830s represents one kind of time shifter marker in New York history so that's the first novel that we're going to be talking about is Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence which is set um, in and around 18 the 1870s and then takes a time jump in the final chapter up into like the just the turn of the century. And was, um, when was um, Edith Wharton or when was that book published? Do you know? That book was published in 1921. So in during the Roaring Twenties, funny enough, which was a time when really like literary aesthetics were changing. Um, and New York was transforming, actually, in ways that we'll see later in Willa Cothers writing. So, um, so, um, I'm interested, I know Sophia, you've been doing a little bit of research on Edith Wharton recently. I'm interested why you chose her as the first author to talk about for a New York city writer. Yeah, because, uh, in the age of innocence, even though it's written in 1921, it actually gives us a really succinct look back at the time when New York City itself was really transforming into the city that we recognize today. So what we were looking for when we were selecting, or what I was looking for, I guess, when I was picking certain books of, at the turn of the century, was I was trying to find works that captured New York City the way that we think of it now. Mm-hmm. And that really doesn't happen until the 20th century. So works written earlier than that in like the 19th century it's almost like the authors haven't quite either they lived in a time when New York was still this older model that wasn't really recognizable as a modern city or a metropolis, um, or they just hadn't assimilated that information in the way that Wharton was able to. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I think like what we see here, but still the 1870s New York that she represents in 1921 is really like a, I think of it as kind of like a horizontal New York, you know, there are no skyscrapers yet, even though there's this sense of kind of like culture and bustle is beginning to come into the city, like um, a gridded pattern in the city was introduced uh, through the commissioner's plan in, I think, um, is it 1811? And so you're beginning to like see these transformations in order to deal with the population growth of the city. Mm -hmm. But Oh, I don't know where that butt was going. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, so just to like shout out to our audience for a moment for framing here, Sophia and I had a little bit of a difficult time deciding what writers in what time period to even focus on 
with talking about New York City writing and literature because it really is just an endless sort of like tunnel that we could have gone down to choose from. So, yeah, we sort of focused on the 20th century for the reasons that Sophia just mentioned and focused on female authors because our research interests overlap there. And Edith Wharton, who interestingly enough has a home where I am now in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, um, but she, well, she did, I should say, she's no longer alive, but she wrote this book, The Age of Innocence, which is set in New York City. And there's also a great film with Daniel Day-Lewis, if anybody wants to check that out. Um, But as Sophia is saying, it's a text that captures certain elements of New York City, perhaps in a quintessential way and and maybe in a novel way for the time. Um, Sophia, can you walk us through some of the elements of the city that you think are really noteworthy that Wharton commentates on in that book? Uh, yeah, so I think something that comes up repeatedly in Wharton's writing um, is this idea of, and this comes up not just in The Age of Innocence, but also in The House of Mirth, is this idea of metropolitan distances, mm. which she calls either vague metropolitan distances or, um, I forget what the other term was, but anyway, there's always this idea that there's like something taking shape out there somewhere. Um some new New York that's coming into being. And actually that's pretty important because in the 1950s, New York started to move. Well, some construction was completed up in like the forties in New York city. So for example, in Bryant park, there was a um, reproduction of the London crystal palace where Bryant park is today. And uh, it burned down very quickly, like maybe only a year or two later, which is, you know, probably a large part of why it's no longer around. And fires are something that happened quite a bit in New York City during this time period. There was a real problem with things catching on fire. Um, But, yeah, so there was that kind of then because the Crystal Palace was there, other businesses and hotels and just kind of like public life began popping up in the 40s. And one of the really like sort of markers of 1870 New York that um, Edith Wharton latches onto is the construction of Central Park. Mm. And the um, so there's this character that which we heard a little bit about in the passage that I just read, Mrs. Manson Mingott, who actually built her house up uh, right across from Central Park in, again, like remote distances um, and what I believe she refers to, what Wharton refers to as a wilderness. Uh, so this idea that up there, there are really only farms. And actually, I think this is important to note is that Central Park was built by ejecting an African-American community known as Seneca Village. So in order to get this um, giant city, iconic giant city park built, basically because there was a wealthier group of people who managed to lobby against having their homes <laughs> knocked down. Um, the This village of Seneca Village was basically like they were forced to move out of their homes and then Central Park was constructed. So Mrs. Manson Mingott builds her house up there across from this park before anybody else does along Fifth Avenue, but way further up than everyone else. Um, and this is actually based on Edith Wharton's aunt, um, something Jones. I forget she's got a similar name but yeah and so you can actually see images of this like sort of french style vaguely chateau looking house up there that that was built so that's an element of it all of these houses being built along fifth avenue in general is an element of the movement uptown um downtown was being transformed so that uh it could be allocated for like docks and importation so a lot of um a lot of like sort of the old new york homes downtown were being moved uptown and then also there's uh but still when you read it it's wharton like the oldest families live in washington square 
Um, so that's always a marker in her works of that, like that old New York. And I think another really important element of old New York is recognizing, I think a lot of times when people hear about Edith Wharton, they think that what she's writing about is like the Gilded Age industrialists. And she's not, I mean, she's writing about writing about the Gilded Age and those sort of nouveau riche or parvenus and industrialists are starting to like infiltrate the society that she's talking about but the society that she's actually talking about are merchant and um colonialist families Mm. so yeah yeah something that i think is really interesting about what you were just talking about is the relationship between the space in the city and the consciousness of the people living there so how spaces are reflected in the citizens who live in a space. And so like you were saying, building certain buildings on the park or like you were saying, Edith Wharton was writing in a time that you think of more as horizontal, things weren't really being built vertically. And that relationship between how a space is rendered physically and materially and how the people who live there are affected. And obviously like this is a conversation that has many layers and even based on more I guess contemporary problems like gentrification to going back to like the very beginning of New York City's um, origins of as being a sort of pushing off or even like genocide of indigenous peoples of the areas like there's all these different layers of space and inhabitants so I think that's really interesting how you're able to bring that element with the specificity of like certain buildings even and certain parks and certain landmarks. Like to me, that's really fascinating because I don't have that particular like knowledge, I guess, of those exact spatial or urban planning or urban like developments where I always know exactly how they correlate to cultural movements or literary movements even. So thanks for drawing those connections. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think along those lines, another thing to think about in terms of horizontal New York is that this is the time period when a lot of those kind of like great Gilded Age mansions were built along Fifth Avenue, which you can still see an example of a few of those mansions. Um, One would be what's now the Morgan Library down around, also around like the 40s, and then also the um, Frick Museum is another example of one of those buildings. But a lot of them actually really just within, I think, like a 30-year time frame were pretty quickly knocked down because if New York was becoming more dense during the 1870s and up into the 19th century, by the time you get to the 1920s, you know, this, like, space of personal block-sized mansions is just not practical anymore. So a lot of these almost like little castles were or little palaces were knocked down and then they constructed these now iconic high rises where many of the same families then took up like multiple floor residences, Mm -hmm. which I think is another really interesting element to think about how brief this period that she's describing was. And yet it was such a turning point. And one of the things that Edith Wharton writes about in a later biographical fragment, not her autobiography, but something she wrote a little bit later, um, the name of which escapes me right now, but she writes about how back when she wrote The Age of Innocence, she didn't really conceptualize or understand even then how much New York was going to continue to change and transform during her lifetime. Um, And that she sees now that that moment in time that she captured was just a like really tiny fragment of where New York was going, which I think is really interesting that she was there to capture so much of that. Yeah. Um, So talking about these different buildings reminds me of the reading that, you shared with me. Sophia shared this reading mm-hmm. for me to take a look at for today's podcast. And it's by Willa Cather and it's called Behind the Singer Tower. It's a short story. I believe it was published in 1912. And I mean, I just read it 
briefly, so Sophia can probably talk about it more in depth, but it's such an interesting story because it focuses on specifically buildings within New York City and specifically one of them which had just burnt down and killed 300 people at a hotel. So I think this is such a wonderful intersection of some of the themes we're talking about of literature and buildings and New York City and like this crazy moment where Katha writes Katha writes this story where these things all come together and gives us something to think about in terms of what why do people sort of build these buildings and why is this what is the sort of moral or ethical element behind construction um yeah well so i have a few interesting lines here to talk about that as well um two of them are from another book that we were going to try to integrate into this conversation as well passing and then one of them is from uh behind the singer tower and i think they kind of capture that by the 19 well Cather, like you said writes her short story in um 1912 but then uh, by 1928, which is when Passing comes out, I, I think that there's this kind of ability for, um, Will, not Willa Cother, uh, Nella Larson to kind of synthesize a lot of the transformation that was going on as well. Mm-hmm. So, and could you tell the it, listeners just really briefly what Passing is about? Yeah, Passing is, a, is an iconic Harlem Renaissance novel about, it basically, it's that kind of like classic passing narrative about the struggles of being someone who racially doesn't quite fit into either category. You look white, but because of this kind of like theory of the one drop rule, you know, if you're in any way have any kind of African-American derivation that anyone can figure out or trace in your family, then you're considered black. Um, and so that's what passing is about is kind of pushing on the ba- uh, on the stability of this notion of race and teasing out some of the intricacies of, you know, what what is racial identity when you don't resemble mm-hmm. visually the race that you're supposed to be identifying as. Um, so one of the characters ends up actually married because she just kind of like accidentally discovers that people just don't get that she's not. Um, white because she's living with two white aunts who don't want her to reveal to their friends that she is actually African-American and their father was African-American. So, and then she sort of accidentally ends up um, just in white society. Then she decides to marry a white man. And that's where the sort of central drama uh, unfolds because she meets up with an old school friend, Irene Redfield, who is very much involved with the African-American community during the Harlem Renaissance, also capable of passing, but very open about the fact that she's identifies as African-American and the kind of conflict that unfolds between the two of them and their different life experiences. Um, So I think uh, some of these lines, just to get at them really quickly This, Irene told her, was the year 1927 in the city of New York, and hundreds of people of Hugh Wentworth's type came to affairs in Harlem, more all the time, so many that Brian had said, pretty soon the colored people won't uh, won't be allowed in at all or will have to sit in Jim Crow sections. And then in another passage, these followed a smooth surface of talk about Chicago, New York, their differences, and their recent spectacular changes. And I think the one thing that I really wanted to note here, one is that we, you know, we get a timestamp, which is 1927. But the second thing is passing takes place between Chicago and New York. And Chicago is actually where the first skyscrapers were, well, where the skyscraper was invented while, even though New York is kind of the place where we begin to think about um, kind of the skyscraper is the iconic or representative building. But I thought that was really nice here that in this novel, you see that, that little like nod back to Chicago, like, Hey, Chicago and New York were neck and neck in terms of their um, vertical rise. Mm-hmm. So then from uh, Willa Cother's short story behind the singer tower quote in New York, the matter was spoken of jocularly and triumphantly. The very window cleaners always joked about it as they buckled themselves fast outside your office in the 45th story of Wertheimer tower Though the average for window cleaners who, for one reason or another, dropped to the pavement was something over one a day. 
So again, you have this reference to verticality, to the like new heights of buildings, but also to the death toll Mm -hmm. of this construction project, which is basically what all of um, Behind the Singer Tower is about. And one thing I do want to note is that the burning of the Mont Blanc Hotel, while the Mont Blanc Hotel is a fictional building, it was based on the Windsor Hotels burning down. Mm, Okay. Yeah, I I was wondering that if it was if the Mont Blanc was an actual place or an actual um, hotel or if it was fictional. But Mm -hmm. the Singer Tower was an actual tower. The Singer building was destroyed in 1968. The reason I was curious about it, like the reason I Googled it or whatever, is because of this line in the short story where they describe it as looking really foreign. Someone's like, one of the characters says, look at the Singer building. It looks like it's Asian or like Middle Eastern or something. Like something about the design of it, they are describing by using these geographical descriptions from different places around the world and I was just really curious I was like what is this what why are they describing it looking Asian or something like what does that mean so I googled it and I was like okay yeah like it actually does have a more unique design I guess than what you typically see in New York and that's when I also saw it was torn down which is sad because so many beautiful buildings were were destroyed But I wanted to ask you about that symbol of the Singer building being the title of the story and then also being imbued with this foreign agency. Why do you think Cather chose that as the title? And what do you think she's trying to say overall about skyscrapers? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not completely sure why Cather, that's a great question. I'm not sure why she chose it per se, other than the Singer Tower was the tallest building that had been constructed, I think, at the time. Um, and there was always this race to get higher and higher. So there were a number of tallest buildings constructed. For example, in 1931, the um, Empire State Building became the tallest building in New York. And then no other taller buildings were built because of the crash. Um and the depression. So I think there's an element of that, right? That the singer tower kind of emblematizes everything about New York's kind of vertical climb. And then as far as like foreignness goes, I think that, you know, there's a big theme in this narrative of whose bodies end up buried under these buildings in the name of progress and construction. And, you know, who is the city for and who is the city built by? And, um, yeah, it seems like the builders are all foreign in this particular narrative. They're Italian. Um, and the people who matter are, well, in some cases also foreigners, like amb- ambassadors, for example. But they're like the wealthier population in the city. And that's what makes the uh, Mont Blanc Hotel burning kind of the, uh, like, iconic um or that's what makes it like a news story, right? And the narrative mm-hmm. is that it ha- it's a building with important people in it. Whereas yeah. there are many buildings that burn down, fall down, that kind of thing. And that's sort of what Fred Hallett's getting at when he tells the story of Cesarino and his death. Um, yeah, so anyway, unfortunately, we're out of time and we have to move along to the next, um, to a different time period entirely. <laughs> move forward a little bit. But yeah, there's... I mean, like I said, I think this is, I don't know a lot about the physical space of cities or buildings or that type of thing. So I think it's so fascinating to consider literature from that perspective. And it's cool that there's so many, I mean, this is obviously your research strength. So you're probably like, yeah, I realize that. (laughs) But for me, I'm like, this is so cool that there's all these like buildings in these amazing short stories. And this is a topic that has been already kind of analyzed by by these wonderful writers. I think that's what drew me to the subject, honestly, is just that it's there's something about having that kind of like material presence that's always very exciting when you're reading where it's like, oh, I know that block or, mm-hmm. oh, is that building still here? So, yeah, I mean, I think it's like an endlessly fascinating subject and hopefully people will enjoy hearing about it. So we are going to move forward through the 20th century a little bit and discuss a couple writers and artists in New York City that Sophia hasn't already mentioned. And the first one I would like to draw 
into our attention is Sylvia Plath. She is most known, I think, for writing about New England or being from New England, but she actually spent one summer in New York City while she was a student at Smith College in Massachusetts. She got a summer internship at Mademoiselle Magazine. This was in June 1953, and it was one of 20 month-long placements at this magazine. So she, along with a cohort of 20 young women, went to the offices of Mademoiselle Magazine for a month to have their internships. And there's a really wonderful book called Pain Parties Work, which describes this time in Sylvia Plath's life in detail through using the letters that Sylvia Plath wrote to her brother, mostly, and her family about her experience. And it's a, I think it's a really wonderful book, and it gives a snapshot of New York City, kind of like what Sophia was talking about earlier with Edith Wharton's snapshot in Age of Innocence. It gives a really detailed and descriptive snapshot of June 1953, New York City. And um, just a little bit more detail about I guess this placement, Plath stayed at a woman-only hotel called the Barbizon, which was at the corner of Lexington Avenue and 63rd Street. And she lived there with other young women or other women, kind of like a boarding house vibe is how I sort of interpreted it. And the month that she spent in New York wound up being the inspiration for The Bell Jar, which is her famous novel that was published in 1963. So if you are a Sylvia Plath fan, it's a great time of her life to just sort of look into. And like many people who come to New York even today, um, she was very excited to go and knew that it was knew that the experience was somehow going to change her. But like, unfortunately, like so much of Platt's experience in life, it was not what she thought it was going to be. And she wound up having a much more difficult time and feeling hollow and, and lifeless compared to what she wanted to, how she wanted to feel in the center of this really energetic and interesting creative city. She says um, that she felt like she was, quote, moving dully along in the middle of the surrounding hullabaloo. So this is sort of a typical Sylvia Plath theme, I think, if you are familiar with the author. She experiences the sort of overwhelming um, assault on her senses of the city. It's hot. There's so many people. The homeless people in the subways are so saddening. And in addition, there's this one potential encounter that might have It's not clear, but it might have been a sexual assault that happened to her. So even though she goes in with this, like, really wonderful idea of how this summer internship is going to be, she winds up walking away with memories of the hardship, some of the hardship and some of the darker sides of the city as being seared in her brain. And she returned different a month later. And, you know, this reminds me a little bit of what I was saying during the my experiences part of this podcast when I was saying that New York is an extremely hard place to live and that it takes such a long time to even begin to feel comfortable. So when I think about her as like a 20-year-old or 19-year-old young woman living in this bustling city at one of these crazy bustling magazines for a month, it doesn't I mean sadly it doesn't shock me that her experience was was really negative. Yeah. So I really am not that familiar with Sylvia Plath, kind of much like Kim was a little bit in the dark with my section. For this one, I'm gonna be the the one learning here. I can't believe I haven't read The Bell Jar, but somehow I feel like it's one of those books that gets assigned to you. Um yeah. in school <laughs> and it was just never assigned in any of my classes which is weird because I took a lot of like women's literature courses, (laughs) but yeah, it's, I mean, it sounds like a really fascinating period. One thing that stood out to me was this idea of New York in the summertime, because, you know, also in the short story that we were just talking about behind the singer tower, that too is set in New York 
in the summer, this kind of idea of like sweltering, overwhelming heat. And then I think a lot of um, Wharton's work kind of sidesteps that feeling in the city by all of the characters just scattering for the summer and coming back in the wintertime for their kind of like New York social season. So there's something about this kind of like New York in the summer, certain class of people, like people who actually have to work throughout the year. (laughs) So setting aside Wharton, um, there's just something about that New York summertime heat. That's really iconic in literature. Yeah. I think because the city is oppressive at that time. Yeah. And, um, Sylvia Plath was not from a wealthy family. Like she did, she was elite in a certain sense that she went to elite schools and had this internship at an elite institution, but her family were not like wealthy people. So she was always grappling with that identity as well of coming from a working class background. So it is a different, it definitely is a different um, type of, I guess, mentality and, yeah, yeah more, Edith, akin Edith to, more akin to Cothers, New York. I think, yeah. you know, those of us who have to work, we have to just, like, adjust to being hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe there's something about, like, we all, a lot of people, if you've lived through one New York summer, you can you can just, like, put yourself immediately in those shoes and be like, yeah, I know why that's so hard. <laughs> yeah, like I, June I or exactly. July in New York. It stinks, yeah. smells really bad. Uh it's my really first, hot. You feel disgusting. Mm-hmm. My first summer in New York City, I did not have an AC unit. And I was just kind of like, I don't need one. I can get through it. And oh, I did not. of you. Yeah, I did not even last the whole summer. I think by August, I was like, okay, whatever. Screw this. I need to go buy something. Because it really does just become insufferable. And there's nowhere you can go to get out of the heat. Yeah, it's a heat island because the population density is so high, you know, during this time period, as well as like also during Cother's time period, there was electricity in the city and that, you know, keeping everybody's homes up and running with electricity intensifies the heat um, in Manhattan also. One other thing that kind of, I think may, it helps me situate myself a little bit more in the New York of the 1960s and may help our audience as well as to think of um, Mad Men that series because that is also set in the New York of the especially the 60s um so to think of that to think of you know people moving through those types of offices that like mid-century New York City yeah and I mean I think that like Sylvia Plath is kind of an interesting literary character I don't know if I would necessarily like recommend I mean, I think her writing is wonderful, but at the same time, I don't know if I would recommend it to you to read if you haven't. It's it's very dark, and everything about her sort of, like, literary persona is is hard. Like, it's, it's difficult. She struggled a lot mentally, and that's reflected in her autobiography or her biography within her work. That being said, that's also, like, at the same time why I like her work, because it's able to give voice to that side of um, suffering, I guess you could say, that is sometimes hard to talk about or is not always reflected in literature. So she is a difficult figure, but I think the reasons that, that I like to read her is just, like, you know, not everybody has a wonderful summer internship and sometimes it's okay to have one that's not great (laughs) yeah so I I don't think I've ever met anyone who didn't like Sylvia Plath either who's read her so I think that there is something that she captures without being too much of a downer because anyone I meet who's talking about the bell jar they say you know you either talk about the things you hate or the things you love and I I haven't met a lot of haters I think for me it's like I don't want to like glamorize suffering or depression Mm -hmm. or make it something that's like it's better literature because it's talking about depression like I never want to sensationalize it or anything like that but at the same time that she did struggle and that's kind of what it is about so there's a certain um reality there that's that can be really like that people can relate to in a certain way yeah. But, well, what does it mean to be a working woman in New York City during this time period, you know, before? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So I think that there's there's something there as well. Like it had to have been a struggle because 
the 1960s, that's during um, the civil rights movement. Yeah, I mean, the 1960s is a time period that I kind of found, like, for me, I think a lot about writers in New York City at that time period. And moving along to another writer I wanted to mention, she's also writing in the 60s or and the 70s. But I wanted to talk about this writer because she's sort of the polar opposite in some ways to Sylvia Plath. And I'm talking about Patti Smith and in particular her book Just Kids, um, which is set in New York City and really relays her relationship with Robert Maplethorpe through the 60s, 70s, and then the 80s until he passed away from AIDS. But Patti Smith's book is remarkable, not just because of all the specific references to different people like musicians, artists, writers, poets, and places within the city, but also her tone and her optimism, which just like sears out of the pages of her book and is so polar opposite to Sylvia Plath. So for the same reason I like Sylvia Plath, that emotional element, I also love that emotional element of Patti Smith's writing. It's so palpable, the sort of like calmness and ease with which she writes and you can sort of see her living in these scenarios that she's painting um she so also moving to a different sort of socioeconomic situation she was really at the bottom of that she was homeless um she lived on the streets she squatted at different apartments first in brooklyn and then um her and robert maplethorpe were able to scrap together enough money to rent really sort of like um shoddy apartments in Brooklyn and then finally they moved into Manhattan and there's one specific locale in Manhattan I wanted to mention in this podcast that she talks about a lot which is the Chelsea Hotel Um, the Chelsea Hotel or the Hotel Chelsea also goes by is located in the Chelsea area of New York City on it's on 222 West 23rd Street and It was a place for artists and writers in the 1960s, 70s, and even before. Um, It was a historic landmark built between 1883 and 1885. And it became known primarily for the notability of the people who lived there and who, because people actually lived there as like residents. They would um, live in a room for like years and years. And it's currently closed, um, by the way. I guess it's supposed to have been opened and reopened like in 2018, but that never happened. So I'm not really sure what's going on with it now. But the way that Patti Smith writes about the hotel in Just Kids, it's a place that her and Robert Maplethorpe show up. And they went there because they had nowhere to go, basically. They were homeless. And since they were both artists, they were probably in their um, early 20s at the time, but they had amassed basically everything to their name was these big portfolios of paintings and drawings and sketches. And they had heard that if you go to the Chelsea Hotel, sometimes they would let you trade your art for a room. And lo and behold, that wound up working. So they're able to trade some of their art to the um, proprietor of the place to have a room there. And there they meet all kinds of people over the years, um, just to name some of the writers who famous writers and thinkers who passed through Chelsea Hotel over the years, um, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Jack Kerouac, Valerie Solanas, William S. Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, and then of course Patty Smith and Robert Maplethorpe. And this so obviously you can see the appeal of this space where all of these Um, sort of beatnik, hippies, all these sort of people pass through. It's a lively space. People are mingling, um, creating art. And it's, as Patti Smith words it, she says, quote, life at the Chelsea Hotel was an open market. Everyone with something of himself to sell. And I just wanted to call attention to that, to both Patti Smith's text, Just Kids, to check it out and also to the Chelsea Hotel is just a really interesting segment of New York City in the 1960s and 70s. 
Yeah, thank you for that. That is really interesting. A few things kind of come to mind for me with that. One is, is isn't during this time period, Chelsea's also like a place where um, there was a lot of like queer cruising, I think. Um, yeah, maybe that's more in the 80s. I don't I don't know. But I think and so I I wonder, you know, to what extent that plays a role, you know, the fact that this was like a, a neighborhood that's known for its kind of queer community and culture, which I think Chelsea is still known for today, even though, you know, now it's obviously like heavily gentrified and no one mm-hmm. could afford to live there thanks to the High Line, amongst other things. But <laughs> Even within the 20th century, we've already covered so many different movements and evolutions. And I think like you can't talk about New York without talking about some of the um music and art and um, energy that was coming out of the 60s and 70s at that time of like the sort of just like the Harlem Renaissance like you have to Mm -hmm. mention the Harlem Renaissance it's like you have to mention the sort of like I don't know free love sort of hippies who who well another thing that really I think really stands out right now because we're talking about potentially, you know, people are lobbying for a rent freeze in New York because of COVID-19 and the fact that, you know, there are many people who are unemployed right now, can't work, aren't receiving money because they've been fired by their companies because, you know, they can't work. And um, it's kind of interesting to think about this Chelsea Hotel is like whoever the proprietor of that place was, he was really like a an art um, patron. Right. Yeah, or, like a curator. Yeah. Yeah, because he's giving people space to work essentially. Like if he sees something in their art that he likes, then it's like, okay, you can live here. I know, and I should know the name of that person. I didn't write it down, but um, what a like, and this is kind of New York of the '80s, also like right before the AIDS crisis. Like, it's just a different place like you can get a hotel room with a painting you know that's not a city that I've ever lived in at all yeah what a different mindset (laughs) on the part of that proprietor to be like you know oh I like this I like this art yeah (laughs) here's a place to live yeah and just sort of to wrap up there's just one other thing I'd like to mention about New York City literary culture and that would just be the LGBT literature and culture, um, which Sophia kind of alluded to. But there is a big contingency of LGBT literature, both set in New York City and then also writers who have emerged from New York City. And just to mention, too, which people out there might know, um, Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg is a wonderful text about um, well being a butch lesbian and I believe it was published in the 90s. So it's sort of at the very end of the 20th century now we're going. And Leslie Feinberg, I mean, this is a very autobiographical novel. It is a novel, but it's quite autobiographical to her life. And she was born and raised in Buffalo, New York. So the beginning part of the novel takes place there. But she does wind up in the city by the end of the text and... So much of that book has to do with unions, with factories, with being an LGBT person and trying to frame your identity in a way to be a fully fledged citizen in this world. And New York City plays a huge role in that as well, because she covers the um, Stonewall riots at the end of the text. So quick shout out to to Leslie Feinberg. And I guess I'll end there because I could probably just keep going. But if anybody does want more reading recommendations about like LGBT literature and New York City or writers, that's that's just such a like rich area there that I wanted to just throw out a quick shout out. Yeah, also Willa Cather. But um, <laughs> I think there's one more name that we should be mentioning. Uh, and I don't know why her name is like escaping me right now. But um, the author of Nightwood, Juna Barnes. Oh, Juna Barnes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Maybe, Kim, you could just go ahead and say where people can find you. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Salon Evocations. Definitely appreciate you guys listening. Um, Remember to like, rate, and subscribe us. And my name is Kim Coates, and you can find me at my journal's Instagram page, which is called Evocations Review. 
Sophia, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you? Ah, yeah. Yeah, so definitely like, rate, and subscribe to us. That would be really helpful in terms of continuing to do this project and get some kind of like metrics on who our audience is. And um, you can find me at, at The Metropolitanist on Instagram and at my website, Maison Metropolitanist, which is an extension of sort of what I do on The Metropolitanist, just kind of urban life and literary culture. I hope you guys stay tuned for our next episode, episode four, which is the queer episode. So I actually ended at a perfect spot this week because we're going to use it as a, as a launch point for next week for the queer episode. So stay tuned. <laughs>